This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, supporting the show on Patreon. Join Odo's ADFite army at patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast, where you can enjoy new episodes 48 hours early, the special director's cut version of each episode, and more. Join us in creating the AD history you deserve, and go to patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast to learn more. Thank you. Have you ever wondered what it was like to live through a major natural disaster in the ancient world, or what you need to do to start your very own podcast. Well, do we have some stories for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Charles Sidney Foote. The one and only. How are you today, Lord Foote? I am fantastic. This is one of my... It's always one of my favourite times when we go to what we missed, Paul. It's always exciting to sort of go back on the century. It's good to have a century done with. The fourth century is in the bag, but not quite. We've still got to figure out just a few little details we didn't have time to look at in the main uh, podcast itself. But, Paul, how are you doing? Hey, I'm happy to be here Mm. sitting down recording with you. This has been a, a real challenge of a season, especially making the transition also to video. Yes. So it's been a lot of learning, a lot of prep doing new stuff and mm. executing it for the first time. So it's a it's an accomplishment to have finally gotten here. And so today, obviously, if you are a longtime listener of AD History, you know what, what we missed is all about. Mm. But in addition to that, we're also going to have a segment today where we're going to make some excellent recommendations for books in regards to history, games, as it has to do with history, <laughs> And three, documentaries as it goes to history. And in addition to that, Patrick, you and I are going to be answering a question that I've actually been fielding quite a lot within Mm. the last year, uh, specifically for people that email us. And we are always happy to hear from anybody who has taken the time and energy to reach out to us and let us know their thoughts. It's usually a very pleasant thing, and we, we love hearing from you. But there's one question that we seem to get a lot which is, well, how how do I start a podcast? And we're going to show you, especially now that we have video, um, uh, a very straightforward way for you to start it out in terms of what you need to know and what will help you get on the right track, both in terms of generally how we set up the show in terms of its conceptual design, the show design itself. And while we won't talk about how exactly we do it technically because it wouldn't be applicable to most people, we definitely will share with you a way for you to start it that is not hard on the wallet and will give you exactly what you need to really sound very, very good right from the start. And I'm excited to be doing all of these today, Patrick. Yeah, trust us, listeners. If us two can make a podcast, you guys can too. (laughs) True that, my friend. And with all of that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary obligatory, now legendary, AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 
two over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Okay. Yeah. And Mr. Foot. Yes. Patrick. Foot. Yeah. You're going to kick us off here today in terms of one of the first things that we decided to cover in what we missed for our fourth season and the fourth century. Yeah. And I hand this one to you, my thank, dear friend. Thank, so it's also probably worth mentioning, Paul, that we're doing things slightly different with how we've done what we missed in the past. So I think in previous what we missed episodes, we kind of covered four, like four things each, three to four things each but only in quite passing detail. This time we've got a subject each, but we've done them in a lot more detail. I think it's just worth highlighting. I've done things a little bit differently just to get more in-depth on some more interesting yeah. subjects, really. Yeah, we want it to be just mm. a bit more focused. Mm. Yeah, so I've decided to focus on a really, really interesting event, this being the earthquake of 365 A.D., and while a lot has changed between the 4th century and today, one thing has remained the same. And that's the incredible impact that natural disasters can inflict on civilizations. We see it today, Paul, and it's no different in the past as well. And we've already seen it in the past with like the destruction of Pompeii, which I believe was talked about in the first ever what we missed. Clearly, we save natural disaster for what we missed. And of course, there's various plagues, which... They can be debated if they're man-made or natural disasters, but it's things that affect us today and it's things that affected the people of the past. And it makes you realize that sometimes the most dangerous enemy isn't some other empire or a rebellion from within your very own empire, but sometimes it's just Mother Nature herself. And in the 4th century AD, the ancient Mediterranean was hit by one of the biggest natural disasters it faced. That being a huge earthquake that shook the ancient world. And it happened in this decade, in 365 AD. Uh, so this earthquake occurred on the 21st of July, 365 AD. And it's believed to have uh, originated under the sea near the island of Crete. It's the southernmost island of modern Greece. Uh, for lack of a better term, if you see a big island at the very bottom, that's Crete. One of the, I think it's the biggest island and southernmost island of Greece. Ancient in its scope, to be sure, and a very important island, no less. And yeah, I, I do believe Crete does is administered and belongs to the the government today of Greece. Yeah, obviously in its past, like the whole Greek islands are very much known. In fact, the, the the concept of Greece we have today is a very sort of modern concept to an extent, like. Ancient Greece yeah. wasn't a united entity like that as we talk about it. That's a different subject for another time. But Crete itself, oh yeah, without going too into the geography or geological side of, of this whole conversation with earthquakes, it lies very neatly on one of the Earth's fault lines. And this means earthquakes are actually pretty common in Crete. And even to this day, Crete records earthquakes on a pretty regular basis. And Paul, I just need to ask you something. Um, yeah. So this is kind of random. The UK, sure. the UK has very minimal earthquakes. Have you ever like faced an earthquake in the states where you are, or anywhere else? Okay, so California is best mm. known for its earthquakes. It's right there on a very large fault line. Mm. Uh, so you know, there's always like an offhanded joke that's 
quite a bit more serious sometimes than we like to think about, about California like physically being separated from the contiguous United States and the rest of North America. <laughs> They've experienced some very significant mm. earthquakes, even in the last 40 years. I believe the last one that I can recall offhand was in the late 80s, I think. Okay. Maybe it was the early 90s. So, yeah, it definitely happens here. Uh, not so much in the in the northeast no. or or the Midwest, but California is particularly susceptible to that particular type of natural disaster. Is it strange? I'm sure this is greatly offensive to anyone who's been in an earthquake, but I can't even fathom what an earthquake must feel like. I do kind of want to experience one for myself because... I can't even fathom the no, idea of the earth below it. No, 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 like the earth below you shaking. It must be bizarre. I've seen video footage of it, but to even imagine what it must be like. I can assure you, as somebody who has been near mm. a tornado when mm. one has touched down, uh, specifically in my time in the Midwest, not, not so much Chicago, but visiting other relatives and whatnot out in other places in the Midwest, mm. I believe it was back in, I want to say 2011, I was in St. Louis, I believe it was, over Easter, and a very large tornado touched down, and it actually took out a terminal at, at Lampert, which is the international airport in St. Louis. Luckily, of, I believe, the three uh, terminals that Lampert has, mm. um, the one that it hit was actually one that was not currently in operation, mm -hmm. so... I don't think there was much by way of like unfortunate, uh, fortunately, death toll yeah. or serious injuries, but it did take it out. That is an experience like a an earthquake that is very difficult to uh, express exactly what that experience is like if you don't have a common yeah. frame of reference. All I can say is that if you have not been near a serious natural disaster, you're very lucky, yeah. and believe me. You really don't want no, to be near one. No, 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 <laughs> it's no. not. There's nothing about it that is um, edifying in any way that's positive. It's something that we have very minimal of here in the UK. We had a pretty vicious storm uh, earlier this year, Storm Eunice, and even that was. Yeah, I can't even imagine. But yeah, but something I was wondering, yeah, is uh, kind of what role earthquakes would have played in Greek mythology. And I kind of did a bit of deep dive into like how. That's actually a really good question. How in the ancient past was this comprehended? And the most I could find was that the god or deity who was put in control or who was related with earthquakes was um, Poseidon, Neptune. So the seas, earthquakes, yeah. so he was the one who was put in control of that. So it was very much, these quakes were very much associated with him. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. But none of the earthquakes that happen in Crete these days aren't ever too strong. Uh, obviously, you get some strong ones every now and then, but nothing compared to this one. So this quake in uh, 365 AD is thought to have been somewhere between 8 to 8.5 in magnitude. Oh, boy. So uh, I'm not an earthquake specialist, as we've established, but... So for Neither am I. No, so for reference, the 2010 Haiti earthquake was a 7 and the 2011 yep. uh, Japan earthquake was a nine. Yes. They're two of the biggest earthquakes in recent, in recent memory. memory. Yeah. So it it really sat somewhere pretty neatly between those two. And those two were horrendously destructive. I remember the news about yeah. Haiti, the news about Japan. I uh, remember the one in Japan very vividly. Like, yeah. It, it was a real, you know, it was, it was awful. So um, this quake sat somewhere between these two and 
if you think about the destruction that those earthquakes did to our modern world, just imagine how much damage they could have done in the past. I mean, in the past, obviously, we had far less understanding of exactly what was happening and mm. why. Mm. And so it makes all the sense in the world, especially if you were looking back to, say, the uh, the Greek gods and, and, mm. and Greek mythology, that it would have made all the sense in the world at that point to attribute it to one of these, yeah, one of these deities. Oh, what else could you do? Like, yeah. There wasn't a heck of a lot at that point. And even for civilizations that in many respects were as scientifically minded Mm. as, say, like the ancient Greeks were, there wasn't a heck of a lot you could go off of the the technology to understand it and better probe and comprehend our world. We just weren't there yet. Mm. So uh, it's believed that this quake would have happened around sunrise and obviously it began on the seabed and the quake itself was pretty devastating, uh, especially to the island of Crete. And one source said that this earthquake raised parts of Crete 10 meters higher, just all of a sudden, boom, part of it's that's 10 inc- meters. I mean, that's, ri- that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And like the, the entire island was pretty much destroyed. Towns, cities, villages, just all erect. Though the quake itself was felt across the entire Mediterranean, uh, its impact was even felt in North Africa and Iberia. But this yeah. was an underwater earthquake. And of course, more often than not, when you have an underwater earthquake, it unfortunately leads to a tsunami. And that's where the real destruction often happens. So while the quake itself devastated Crete, the following tsunami destroyed so much of the Mediterranean. Uh, The area that was most affected was the southeast of the Mediterranean, with cities and towns across North Africa and the Middle East completely destroyed. One estimate actually puts that around 50,000 people were killed during this earthquake. And to put that death toll into perspective, that's up there, say, like the Battle of Cannae back in the Second Punic War, which is before the scope of this podcast. But yeah, uh, very much. Yeah, it's one of the most infamous losses in Rome's history. That was about 50,000 dead as well. So this was akin to a like an awful defeat a war that was so many people died at this time uh, but it was in some ways mm. you have to kind of imagine it's it's worse because you mm. don't just have the death and injuries you also have changes to the topography yeah and potential damage to infrastructure and uh, a very very costly and while you can obviously never get back a human life no. you in this case there's also so much of this extremely expensive damage elsewhere to and really important stuff and there's also the wider variety of life loss as well. So say in a battle, by and large, it would be soldiers who are dying. Of course, a life is a life, yeah. but it's something like this. You have soldiers dying, you have children dying, like farmers, workers. It's going to be, it's going to be so much more impactful than a, 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 a battle. In, in, in certain respects, absolutely, mm. just because it's, it's so indiscriminate. So it wasn't just, as I said, the southeast of the Med was one of the places most de- uh, badly affected by all of this. And one of the most noticeable places to get affected by the tsunami was Alexandria in Egypt. And Paul, we've talked about how important Egypt and specifically Alexandria were to uh, the Roman Empire. They're the breadbasket. They're like, I think I was reading... Egypt, the province of Egypt, was the second wealthiest in all of Rome behind the Italian peninsula itself. It was hugely important. 
Yeah, everything mm. from obviously having great agricultural contributions to it, the port there being one of the most strategically important mm. on an economic basis, to be sure. And of course, with Egypt, not Alexandria, but Egypt in general, you had connections to the Red Sea, which are very important links economically to India through mm. sea trading routes and the gold mines and silver mines and it was their there's jewel. a reason why yeah. egypt is so darn important it was like I, it was the jewel in their crown i suppose in some extent it was just this real it's this city they just very much enjoyed yeah you, it's funny that that's actually a really mm. interesting little analogy you made there in many ways i think you could almost call egypt of this time during throughout the roman period and the roman period mm. that they controlled it Egypt to Rome was India to the British Empire. Oh, that's a great example. That's a great sort of parallel, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. There's a. I feel like there's a lot that that sits there that that mm. resonates in a meaningful way. But it doesn't matter all too much now because Alexandria has just been decimated by this earthquake, and <laughs> all the empire feels that one. And the reason Alexandria is so noteworthy in this is because. Uh, the effects of this earthquake in Alexandria were actually recorded in detail by a historian called Amianus Marcellinus. Ooh, try saying that ten times yeah. fast. I'm amazed I could say it once at a regular speed. Hurrah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was in Alexandria when it happened or he appeared afterwards. I don't think we know at all, but I've actually got a, a small extract of what he witnessed there. So bear with me as I read this out. It reads, and this is great. I thought I could just describe it, but this quote explains things perfectly. <clears throat> it reads, Slightly after daybreak, and heralded by a thick succession of fiercely shaking thunderbolts, the solidity of the whole earth was made to shake and shudder, and the sea was driven away. Its waves were rolled back, and it disappeared so that the abyss of the depths was uncovered and many shaped varieties of sea creatures were seen stuck in the slime. The great wastes of those valleys and mountains, which the very creation had dismissed beneath the vast whirlpools, at that moment, as it was given to be believed, looked up at the sun's rays. Many ships, then, were stranded as if on dry land and people wandered at will about the paltry remains of the water to collect fish and the likes in their hands. Then the roaring sea, as if insulted by its repulse, rises back in turn, and through the teeming shoals, dashed itself violently on islands and extensive tracts of the mainland, and flattened innumerable buildings in towns or wherever they were found. Thus, in the raging conflict of the elements, the face of the earth was changed to reveal wondrous sights. For the mass of waters returning when least expected killed many thousands by drowning, and with the tides whipped up to a height as they rushed back, some ships, after the anger of the watery element had grown old, were seen to have sunk, and the bodies of people killed in shipwrecks lay there, faces up or down. Other huge ships, thrust by the mad blasts, perched on the roofs of houses, as happened at Alexandria, and others were hurled nearly two miles from the shore, like the Laconian vessel near the town of Metone, which I saw when I passed by, yawning apart from a long decay. That is a hell of a description, Paul. 
yeah, he really, not only does he capture it all, but it has a somewhat poetic quality to it. I know, right? Like, imagine... It really paints the picture. Yeah, like, such a a vivid description. More than, like, I don't know, I think people often associate historians with quite stuffy ways of writing, just getting the facts down, but you can be creative with your writing in history. This is a prime example of that. But, like, it kind of, the way he talks about, like, the thunderbolts looking up to the waves looking up to the sun it's not spoken about in a scientific or geological perspective it's like a historic but like you said poetic it's a really guttural reaction to what happened here and it creates a hell of an image in your head it's it's interesting because you mentioned that a lot of times written history Mm. can come off very dry and stuffy Mm. and it doesn't need to be that way and in the occasion when you're fortunate enough to encounter a portion of history that you're very interested in a historian that does fantastic research and also has the given talent Mm. of having a tremendous poison pen, it really just brings all of it together in a way that brings history to a more living and dynamic quality Mm. as opposed to what I can only describe as kind of a more stereotypically stuffy and sometimes, though not always, but sometimes associated with histories that are written uh, high atop the ivory tower. Kind of, This doesn't yeah, seem at all to be the case no. here. Kind of like the way Wikipedia presents its information to you. Not all history is like that. No, no. no. And that's not us, us taking a shot at the no, ivory no, no, tower no. by any means, but there are times when there is... History written for a specific purpose in terms of like a really important paper that Mm. might end up getting later published for actual commercial distribution Mm. and and purchase where the quality of the research is wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily draw you in for the quality of it in regards to it also having the best elements of literature. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Of course... Of course, you want your history not to be more literature than history, yeah. but, but something that really brings it alive from a historian that's doing fantastic research can't beat it. No. And what he just described there is something that if you're interested in this, that would most certainly stick with you in a profound way. But yes, Paul, this is just what I wanted to share with you for this what we missed. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating thing. I think something about these natural disasters, I find... I guess morbidly interesting in a strange way because sometimes it can feel hard to associate what the people of the ancient world were going through compared to what we're going through today. But something like an ancient, something like an actual disaster that hasn't changed at all since then. So it's just a great insight into how these were just humans dealing with things that we are still dealing with to this day. And I just, I thought it was really fascinating. Highlighted that aspect of all this. It, it bridges the gap of mm. time in ways that there are human experiences that are universal, whether mm. it is in the year twenty twenty two, or whether it is in the year three ninety nine. Mm. And I always think that's important because I, with time that goes on, it and so many of our incredible innovations mm. in terms of our current civilization and how we've progressed. Sometimes it's easy to fall into kind of looking down Mm. at people in the past. And a lot of times 
they'll get treated as if they're stupid. Mm. Yeah, but that's not the case. But they're not. No. And we have a lot more in common with them than I think at times we're re- readily willing to admit. Mm. And an event like a major earthquake leading to a tidal wave, that hasn't changed. No. And even though we've gotten a little bit better at handling such disasters, we are still, in many cases, quite incapable of preventing them. And we're still usually just at their mercy, and you just hope we've gotten a little bit better at cleanup Hmm. duty. So, Paul, it wasn't only earthquakes that were happening that we forgot to talk about during the 4th century. There's also something else highly fascinating. Now, you know me, Paul, I love throughout this. Something I've really enjoyed is tracking the progress of Christianity. So it was in this century where Christianity became the official state religion of Rome. Though more than it being cemented as the state religion happened during this time, as we've talked about in the past, one of the defining features of Christianity, and of course what separates it from Judaism, is its second book, the New Testament. Well, It was during this century that seemingly the earliest version of the modern New Testament was written and recorded. And it has been dubbed the, wait for it, Codec Sinaiticus. Let's go with that. And it is. Say that 10 times fast. I have to say, well, luckily I don't have to say it a few times, which will be explained in a moment. And it is regarded by many Christians as the oldest modern version of the bible in existence and that was during this it was written during this century now just out of Mm. curiosity when you say the closest modern are we talking about it containing the four gospels that have become canon that we know today i believe so yeah and being bound with the old testament it did include some things that are no longer in our modern bible but it contained the old testament and the new testament together in one and that's awfully important because in Mm. order to properly understand the new testament in regards to what jesus is saying Mm. you have to have at least a competent understanding of the tanakh or what in christianity is called the old testament because Jesus was a Jewish reformer, and he was not looking to create his own religion. No. He was always referencing back to the Old Testament. And without that knowledge of what it is that he was referencing, what he is saying loses a great deal of Mm. meaning in terms of the intent of the one who is being quoted. Yeah, that is exactly the point. Like, you can't have a New Testament without an Old Testament. You need it as context. Absolutely, absolutely, because that that is the you know that is the set of books and works that he was working off of. That is where his education came from. You don't have that, you're missing a, a, a very significant portion of the meaning that he was trying to communicate. So first off, let's talk about that name. Uh, Codex is a word yeah. kind of it basically means handwritten manuscript. Uh, from in Greek and Latin, and as for that, Sinaiticus, Sinaiticus, part of the name, uh, that has to do with where the book was found. So the book was found at Saint Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, which is in modern Egypt. So Sinai, Sinai. So Sinaiticus, uh, that name it comes from this mountain, Mount Sinai. Luckily for us, however, this book is commonly referred to as just S. 
book S, Kodak S. So we'll just Ooh. call it that, which makes things an awful lot easier for us fancy historians. Um, yeah. And it was found here in the 19th century, pretty much intact. And though despite being found in Egypt, this Bible wasn't written in Latin, as you might expect, or Egyptian. It was written in Greek. And uh, this might sound quite shocking at first, like, hold on, Greece? Like, they had their own thing going on. Yeah. At this time, Greece is very much associated still to a degree with that Greek mythology. But you got to remember, Greece, it's got a very unique Christian history, you know, Greek orthodoxy is the third, well, orthodoxy in general is the third, is the third major branch of Christianity. So when it came to mm. the New Testament, a lot of it originally was written in Greek. Gosh, yeah. It's interesting because as we've talked about from time to time, mm. in the ancient Mediterranean world, Greek was the lingua franca. Yes. And so, you know, if you were on it, if you had were talking to somebody and you were ethnically Latin and Latin's your first language and you're talking to a native speaker of Aramaic, there is a decent chance that both sides could use, you know, their pidgin Greek to mm. find a language from which to converse. And in the case of the, the New Testament, it was... There are many, many mm. copies, especially early on, where it was written in Greek. Now, there are also others, like, for example, there are versions of it that were written in Aramaic. And as I recall, I believe Orthodoxy, whether it be Greek Orthodox or uh, one of the various Eastern Orthodoxies that are actually very strongly based on the uh, Aramaic mm -hmm. transcripts of it. Don't ask me 100% why, because <laughs> I don't know, but I do know that is indeed the case. And... So the Greek language, especially as written, has a very long and deep history in regards to especially early transcripts hmm. of the New Testament. Yep, definitely. I just think it's very worth reminding people here that like, we haven't really talked about Greece's involvement in the um, adaptation of Christianity and the uh, evolution of Christianity. So it's definitely worth mentioning. They played a very big role in it. And um, this version of the Bible is believed to have been written by a team of three to four scribes. And something I found yeah. interesting is its pages are parchment made from the skin of donkeys and antelope. That's fun. Interesting, interesting. And initially, it's believed to have been over 1,400 pages long. And it wow. contained the entirety of the Old Testament, which, as we talked about, is the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, as well as the New Testament. And... What's impressive is that this version of the Bible is relatively unchanged to what it is today, though there are some differences, however. Noticeably, there were uh, two stories from the New Testament that have been removed from the modern Bible. Those were the Shepherds of Hamas and the Epistle of Barnabas. So what were these stories and why exactly was the choice made to remove them? So I I didn't research into what exactly these stories were, I'm afraid. But uh, from what I gathered, one of these stories, and I forget which one annoyingly, it portrayed Jews in a really negative light. Uh, I think it sort of mm. put a lot more blame on them on of into the death of Jesus than mm -hmm. other tellings. And I think people just wanted yeah. that gone. They were like, this is just a bit too anti-Semitic, a bit too vulgar. I think that was one of the main reasons it was removed, which is totally understandable. That cannot, you know, it's hard to deny. Um, 
that that wasn't the case. But there were also multiple books from the Old Testament uh, that had been removed from our modern Bible too. And a lot of these were actually re removed from the Bible during the Reformation, which is something I'm dying to talk about when we reach it. It's a very interesting time in history. Oh, oh, yeah. you, you and I have a very strong shared interest mm. in the Reformation, especially when it comes to the figure of one Martin Luther. Yes, me, you, and who's Martin. Just endlessly fascinating. <laughs> me, you, and Martin are going to have a very fun time when we get to talk about him. Uh, yes, I should say. It will be enlightening to say the least. Mm. And what's interesting about this copy of the Bible is it's not just important due to its significance to Christianity. Of course, it's really important for Christians, but What's equally important about this Bible is the actual form it takes. I've said it a few times, I've said the word book quite a few times. I'm not just saying that yeah. because it's the word I use for this. This Bible was bound parchment. It was an actual book. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Books are everywhere. Well, at this time, scrolls were pretty much still the norm in the way we yeah. presented the written word. So yeah. Codex S is actually seen as one of the oldest books we know of. And it kind of shows us where people were at in regards to books and scrolls at sure. this time of history. Um, uh -huh. It just shows us that people are making that change from scrolls to books, and that's really fascinating as well. Why was this copy of the Bible able to survive as long as it did? Basically, it was able to survive, really, Paul, thanks to where it was. It was really fortunate of its location. So, as I mentioned, St. Catherine's Monastery is where this was found. And uh, this one of the And old... that, is, that is where again? In Egypt. Okay, in it's Mount in Egypt, Sinai. Right. Uh, this is one of the oldest continuously habited Christian monasteries in the world. And it reminds me a lot of the Pantheon in Rome. The Pantheon, as we talked about, is one of the best preserved buildings in Rome, more so than the Colosseum, more so than the Senate. And the reason the uh, Pantheon was so well uh, maintained was because it always had a importance. It was always a religious site. It was for pagan reasons. Then it became Christian. It's still Christian to this day. So it was always well maintained and well kept. And as this was constantly a, a continuously inhabited Christian monastery, it was always in safe hands. But also the fact that it was in Egypt was very important as well, you know. Egypt doesn't get too wet or stormy or gross. It's dry, crisp air. And that just helped preserve this book as well. It, won't, it didn't get lost in a flood or blown away in some sort of horrible hurricane or anything like that. It was just really fortunate uh, for where it was. And as I've written here, dry Egyptian air is good at preserving things. Ask the mummies. That was part of my <laughs> notes here. <laughs> They're good at preserving things in Egypt. I'll say that much. Where were, When was this rediscovered so it was actually rediscovered in 1859 um it was discovered by a german bible scholar called konstantin von tischkedorf now let's i don't think it takes much of a connection here to realize the the serendipity the incredible coincidence there that yeah. the one who rediscovered it also had the name Constantin. Well, it's definitely the German adaptation of that name, Konstantin. So it's K-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N, Constantin. But yeah, I don't know if there's... Love that German. I try my best. But um, I don't know if there... It, it's maybe this I was guy... actually talking more in general, but yeah, no, I love your take <laughs> on yes, it too. Thank you very much. No, uh, it is very... Um, 
was it a coincidence did he give this name because he cared for Christianity so much that he used name? I don't know but I got a big tickle at the fact that the guy who discovered this Bible hey, sometimes it happens like I like you said Paul good old serendipity uh, when he found it however parts of it were missing around half of the Old Testament but as he continued exploring these fragments of the Bible were found down the line Mm. Though, despite being despite being one thing, this Bible was actually split up into four mm. fragments. So, this Bible, uh, Codex S, today resides in four different fragments in the UK, Russia, Germany, and Egypt. Interesting. Mm. Why those countries? So, Egypt makes sense because that's where it was found. Uh, as we mentioned, Konstantin von Tischgendorf was German. I believe his fragment ended up in Leipzig. As in regards to Russia, I believe he was working on behalf of the Russians, was working with the Russian church. So they got a section. Russian Orthodox Church? Yeah, I believe that was the case. Or like he exchanged something with the Russian Tsar at the time. There's a story behind it. But as for the UK, well, I want to say that's Alexander II off the I top of my head. I believe so. But as for the UK, Paul, well, why did the UK have a- anything? They just wanted it. They took it. <laughs> they wouldn't be alone in that respect. And also, oh, no, when, no, we're talking, totally. when we're talking Germany, if we're hmm. talking that being rediscovered in 1859, it would still be a little over a decade before we saw a German reunification. Of course. So, Germany, yes, but not quite the united germany that no. would emerge you know a good 11 12 years later yes uh, no, and in regards to the uk i believe i read the uk uh government bought a segment of it for a hundred thousand pounds uh, at the time at the time i believe so i wonder what that is with inflation <laughs> has to be well over a million to, yeah yeah this is a very important thing but thankfully in 2009 this bible codex s was reunited but Kind of. It was in this year that those fragments were collected together and scanned online. And this complete Bible, kind of full circle, I suppose, in a way, it can be read in its complete form online. And we'll definitely have a link to the website in the notes for this show. But this whole Bible, Codex Sinaiticus, can be read online completely free for everyone. So like I said, full circle, we're back to it being able to to be read. Hooray! And that is pretty much the story of the oldest continuous Bible we have, Paul. And it's darn fascinating. I just think it's cool that we can still read it to this day, thanks to the internet. It is truly incredible what we take for granted Mm. in regards to all the amazing information that is available to us at our fingertips. Mm. Something that would blow somebody from 100 years ago today Mm. right out of the water that we just take for granted. And Paul, I believe you had a little story you wanted to share at the very end of this segment. Yeah, you were mentioning how the whole AD thing, Mm. how it's in the name and how it obviously has a a connection to Christianity Mm. in regards to the the epoch. And if you're a longtime listener of AD history, we talked about how that epoch came into being, which is to say that it was something that was a product, I believe, of the 6th century Mm when they actually created it and they marked it out from the birth of Jesus of Nazareth to the present day, which now in the Gregorian form of Mm. the calendar very much is the general calendar that 
the vast majority of the world operates from on a pragmatic level. There are a lot of different calendars and epochs throughout history, but this one is one we've all bought into, whether you're Christian or not, and allows us basically to conduct business in a highly globalized world where you and I can sit down and do this show, you being in the United Kingdom, myself being on the East Coast of the United States, mm. and and go about our business. But I remember, I think it was maybe four or five months after the show debuted. Mm. And at the time, though it's no longer necessary based on various things that we've done and created in developing the show, mm. I, was scout- I was scouting out potential places that when we had a guest that was local on my side where we could better uh, have you know, go about recording the show. Mm. No longer an issue. We can do that quite quite fine for how things are set up now Mm. after all these years. And I was being given a tour of the place. Mm. And interestingly enough, it was actually at a public library that had gone through a large renovation. And one of the things that they did was they created this extremely impressive multimedia suite that included a number of dedicated rooms that were acoustically treated Mm. and they had good equipment and whatnot. Very impressive. And great places to do post-production, all of that. Mm. And it had only been up and going for maybe six months, and they had brought in an independent contractor to kind of help them get together and figure out how to use all this great Mm. equipment that they had been gifted, as it were. And I remember the the fellow was British, but he was speaking so fast so fast. It was one of those things where, like, I swear to God, I have seen people that were high on cocaine speak at a lesser tempo. <laughs> so it was one thing that was a little annoying because I speak relatively fast in normal mm. conversation, a little bit different than the tempo that we have here on the show. But he was just going, bah, 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 thinking to myself, slow down, please. <laughs> you know, anyway. And I remember him asking me, saying, oh, oh, A.D., is, is, that, is, that a, is that a religious thing? And I thought to myself, and the way he said it mm. was kind of condescending. And all I could think to myself is, how rude. Because mm. it was one of those things where if it was something religious, you really wouldn't have to ask. Mm. In addition to that, it, I thought it was very unfortunate just that it came off as as very rude. And my response was, well, no, it is us simply calling this epoch what those who originally created it called it themselves. Mm. Now, today in the modern world, in terms of scholarship or personal preference, you want to call it AD? Fine. You want to call it CE? Mm. Fine. That's not so important. It's entirely your thing, and whatever your thing is, as far as I'm concerned, have at it. Mm. But for the purposes of the show, which one is, yeah, we thought 80 sounded a little better. It rolled off the tongue a little better. That and yeah. what that, the, the epoch for the show that we were doing the history of made sense to call it by its original name. Yeah. And I just remember being in that conversation and just the way it came off was like, uh, 
slow down yeah. and think about your words, please. Girl, you've just said. Because for you and I, you know, there there is no hidden connotation. There is no agenda behind the AD no. and AD history. It's just one. It's what the people who originally basically created the thing for all intents and purposes called it. And two, we thought it sounded a bit better. Yeah, to, so, to me, even though CE is becoming more and more popular for sure, to me, AD is still the term people, even those who don't associate it with religion, like it's still just the term people more use. I think for like, yeah. even, not even to go into boring SEO reasons, I think AD, although yeah, people yeah, yeah, think yeah. we're a history of advertising podcast, but that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a thing. Yeah, but um, for us early on, but yeah, but yeah, there was no there was no loaded controversy or anything behind. The no, name we the weren't podcast. trying to prove a point. No, no, we no, were no, just no. we were just calling it what the original, you know, those who originated yeah. called it, and and that was that. And the name, call it CE, yeah. that's fine. And but also, the name, yeah, so you say, go ahead. The name that would instantly people who would hear would instantly know what it means i think people yeah yeah people yeah. know ad more than ce as well i think at the time being if that ever changes and like maybe we might consider but we're happy for now but yeah i don't I'm, yeah I don't after four seasons yeah. i think we're i think yeah, we're pretty we're entrenched pretty yeah so no nothing controversial or we weren't trying to stoke <laughs> no. the flames when we did that no not at all we were just trying to find a good name but that pool is what we missed in the fourth century it is. And now for our next segment, mm. our second of three in our episode, we're going to dive into some really excellent book recommendations regarding mm. history. We're going to go into some excellent game mm. recommendations in regards to history and some excellent documentary mm. recommendations in regards to history. And I think back in the very first season, we were asked questions about gaming in regards to history but that's that was a while ago mm. now and we definitely should update that and we haven't really touched too much on documentaries no no we haven't i'm so, looking forward to hearing some of your suggestions paul and i am looking forward to hearing some of yours so as always mr foot thank you for those wonderful bits of what we miss you're more than us welcome. here you there and we'll be back right after a word from one AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. So, Paul, as we like to do in these What We Missed episodes, we normally like to talk about things in the world of history we've been enjoying send out some recommendation tends to be book recommendations i believe we've done youtube recommendations in the past and we've got more book recommendations we've got some other recommendations some video game recommendations and some documentary recommendations paul why don't you start things off with your top book recommendation at the moment what are you reading well i'm reading a lot of things that you mm. might imagine at any given time regarding history and now is no different 
And if you're a long-time listener or an intermediate-time listener of AD History, or if you're a new one, you know, as, as history goes, I consider myself to most keenly be a student of history of the 20th century, especially the World Wars and the Cold War, intelligence, diplomacy, that sort of thing. That, that's the stuff where I can't get enough of it. And mm. every time I find a new resource that's truly outstanding in those areas, I just tur- I go into sponge mode, <laughs> if I were to describe it as anything, Mr. Foot. And so my first recommendation here is actually, is interesting. It's called the Meisky Diaries, Mm -hmm. the private diaries for Ivan Meisky, who between 1933 and 1943 was the Soviet ambassador to the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly important because in this case, it was edited by Gabriel Gorodetsky who is uh, an excellent Soviet historian. I believe he is Israeli in origin. He might have been based, he might have been born in the United States, but I believe he works and lives in Israel now. And the reason this is so fascinating is because, especially if you're somebody who's high enough on the food chain in the Stalinist government apparatus from say, 1933 to 1943, you're always a potential target. And something that a lot of people avoided who worked in government, just given the fact, especially during this time, where you have the various Stalinist purges going on, writing a personal diary was physically risky to you because you could easily get arrested on some made-up, trumped-up charges, and then have that writing used against you in some way during the kangaroo court show trials. And so Ivan Meisky is particularly interesting. One is because his English was fantastic, and so was his writing, even though he was writing in Russian. He, he did not simply have literature pretenses. He was a legitimately very strong writer, And during his time as ambassador to the court of St. James's, he was writing down on a day-to-day basis his private thoughts and various observations during his time representing the Soviet Union in Great Britain. Mm. And it gives fantastic insights for all the people he dealt with because he was a truly gifted ambassador, which is to say that he knew just how to communicate certain things to his various governmental counterparts in the United Kingdom. He was extremely adept at using the media, specifically the papers at the time, to get out whatever message it was that the Soviet Union was pushing diplomatically at the time. And he became, he really generated a lot of incredible access to the highest players in government. So, for example, he ended up developing a very strong connection and relationship with, say, Winston Churchill or Anthony Eden or Lord Beaverbrook Mm -hmm. or Lord Halifax. He mentions various interactions that he had with Neville Chamberlain, whom had very little affection for the Soviet Union, to say the least. Mm. 
and it gives this fantastic firsthand, honest depiction of what his relationships and what his dealings were like. And Gordetsky does a fantastic job, not just of editing and translating, but providing fantastic context to the passages that are in that particular portion of mm. the diaries, whatever they might be. And so later on, he ended up getting arrested as such, actually about two weeks before Stalin died, even though it, it saved him to a degree, which is to say he was not executed. But he mm. still, even though Stalin was dead, he made certain enemies in the Politburo, like, for example, his previous boss, Molotov, was not that keen on him, and he made sure that he stayed in prison for two years and that he was not given any pen and paper to write because he knew how much he enjoyed it. So, hmm. it, not exactly um, very petty, to say the yeah. least. Yeah. But it's a, it's a fantastic read that gives you a very honest look at it. Now, he did end up writing memoirs um, in the late 60s, early 70s, but he was only given limited access to his diaries, which were confiscated when he was arrested two weeks before Stalin died. And those were very different. You know, his those were like a lot more apologetic and a lot more party line type stuff where clearly he was trying to prove, you know, his great, his great reverence and dedication as a Bolshevik. And they were not nearly as honest and open as when he was writing his diaries that we're reading now many years after his death. Mm. And it was actually discovered quite by accident. Gorodetsky, this was after the fall of the Soviet Union, went into some archive. And the the way the Russian archives work is you tell them what you want and they would give back what they they thought you want. It wasn't necessarily entirely what you're looking for. But in mm. this case, it ended up being very very fortunate because they came out with this huge trove that was his diaries over the span of a decade and he realized oh my god this is a huge window that mm. we never had before into how the soviet government was working that time especially diplomatically very important in the west it covers the time obviously when he was ambassador during the nazi soviet pact also known as the molotov ribbentrop pact and, of course, the first two years in which the West and Great Britain, in this case specifically, was allied with the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany. A fantastically enlightening read that is very enjoyable, both in terms of the information you're getting and the quality of Maisky's writing and the truly superb quality of Gorodetsky's editing and providing context. So it's not a short read, but it's an enjoyable one and something that, since it was contemporaneous to events relative to mm. what Meisky was doing, you can't beat it. It is, whether you're a historian or a student of history, whatever the case might be, if this is a period of time that you find interesting, this is a tremendous window into that world. But it's almost hard to sort of compare it to like a history book in the traditional sense of a historian uh, retelling and explaining events that have happened in the past. This is someone who was there, who was in the thick of it, writing yep. about it as it's happened. This is as close uh, to a time machine as we can get in many ways, it feels like. Totally. And it's very yeah. much worth your time. And it's also available quite quite wonderfully as an audiobook, albeit in uh -huh. a somewhat abridged fashion, not totally. Hmm. And it is narrated by, if you're familiar with audiobooks, the legendary John Lee. So... <laughs>
definitely something to look forward to if that's up your alley. What's one of yours, Patrick? So I'm currently audiobooking a fantastic book called No Such Thing as Society, which, Paul, is that a quote you're familiar with? Not that I'm aware of. So it was famously said uh, by one Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, is, I'm sure, is a figure you are very aware of. Most people uh, so, that are in that world have very strong opinions one way or the other on her. Exactly. And this book isn't about Thatcher herself, but she is fundamentally the main character of this story. So it's a history of the United Kingdom in the 1980s. So the 80s are an incredibly fascinating time all across the world for a variety of reasons. It's somewhat very recent history. You know, there's a lot of people listening who are probably acutely aware of what was going on in the 80s. Paul, I know you are an 80s child yourself, so you were oh, there I was too. Born, I was born in 87, <laughs> so I'm a you child of the 80s. But yeah. It's not like I have great recollections of no, that period of no, my life. No, I'm sure many of our listeners do. So to hear the 80s talked about as history might sound odd, but to a lot of people it is, and it's an incredibly fascinating time especially in the UK. It was the decade of Thatcher. She came into yeah. power in 79, I believe, and got out in 91. Yep. Yep. So she was um, there for the entire 80s. Talks about the minor strikes going on in the 80s as things changing, but also talks about the culture, how music, new romance, became a huge thing in the 80s, in 80s Britain. Style, even talks about video games, that sort of thing. So it's just a really fascinating read, whether you were there in the 80s, whether you're a student of history like myself wants to know more. And it's interesting in its depiction, like I said, Thatcher, while it's a book about the 80s in the UK in general, Thatcher obviously is very much a central figure throughout the book. She's mentioned in pretty much every chapter in one form or another. Sure. And it very much presents a very, it, it, like, you, like you said, Paul, it's easy to have a very specific image or factor in your mind and an opinion on her. But it's a very rounded representation of Margaret Thatcher in this book. I, I, it's not changed my opinions on her, and I won't share my opinions on her. It's not changed mine, but you, you start to understand why people might like her so much, why others detest her so much it really is a really even portrayal which is of is the skill of a historian unto itself absolutely especially Mm. when you're looking back and you're not looking for somebody's personal take on how they feel about it but they're they are presenting you the history and allowing the reader to come to whatever conclusion they feel is Mm. best in the privacy of their own thoughts so a great example of that, before her premiership, she was working in the education system uh, in the government. She was the Secretary of Education, something like that. And it was under her legislation, it was under her rule, that free milk was taken away from school children. They wouldn't get free milk in schools anymore. Uh-huh. And of course, she got this image of Thatcher the milk snatcher. That's what she became known as. <laughs> Man, I could, I could, I could just see that pop up on a British on a British newspaper. Yeah, I'm sure it did make its way around there. Uh, and this is thing she's very much detested for. She's the one who took away milk from children. You know, so you t- literally taking milk from babies. It's like <laughs> as awful as it gets. No, it's not a good look at all. But it's sort of in this book, it talks about how she hated having to do that. And she was pushed into a corner of having to do that. But to hear the other side of the story is very interesting as well. But Paul, what's your next suggestion of a book? So another one, this actually goes mm. into the early period of the Cold War and an extremely mm. important one. And it's called The Marshall Plan by Ben Steele. 
Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with the Marshall Plan, you know how important this was. Yes. Because after the, well, once we reached the conclusion of the Second World War in Europe, Mm. the continent was utterly destroyed. I mean, there, mm. it's not one of those things where the war ended, everybody's happy due to Nazi liberation, which, of course, they were. Mm. Depending on what portion of Europe you on, the, the, he did not have great choices. You either were yeah. under Nazi occupation, then you ended up in Soviet occupation. But in Western Europe especially, even though people were very happy with the Nazi liberation and they knew mm. they would get self-governed again without being under Stalin's thumb, the Marshall Plan basically was a way to help Europe get back on its feet from the incredible economic damage that was done during the war. Because when you're fighting a war, you're not necessarily thinking about the long-term economic repercussions of what you have to do. The job is to win the war, especially Mm. when you're dealing with an enemy that's as ruthless and, um, you know, awful as Nazi Germany was. And so naturally, when you have this large-scale fighting on the continent, the economic prowess afterward is going to be in serious trouble. And it was. Mm. And one of the ways that Europe ended up getting back on its feet, specifically Western Europe and Southern Europe, was through the auspices of what we know today as the Marshall Plan, which was basically the European recovery program, more or less. But they called it the Marshall Plan because George Marshall, who was the Army Chief of Staff for the United States during the Second Mm -hmm. World War, and then he ultimately ended up serving as Secretary of State under President Truman, he had um, a, a tremendous amount of reverence towards him personally by both sides of the aisle. You know, it was said that he did not even vote in election so as not to jeopardize his objectivity in terms mm-hmm. of managing his relationship with either side of the aisle. And Ben Steele tells the incredible story of how that particular program came to be because major recipients of Marshall Plan Aid, of course, included the UK. Mm. It included France, it included Italy, it included Greece, I think Norway was in there, a number of countries that received, in terms of the the financial assistance, 80% of the Marshall Plan was provided by way of grants, so they never had to repay 80% of what was doled out, and just how important it was for Western Europe especially, because Mm. the Soviets, even though they originally were interested potentially in Marshall Plan aid, ultimately Mm. Stalin said no, because we, you know, the United States was also interested in the bookkeeping behind Mm. it. So it wasn't one of those things where just here's the money, go and do whatever you want with it. It's here's the money and we want to make sure that you are not abusing the program as it were that's being used properly. And there's no question that the the Marshall Plan was pivotal to that economic revitalization and reconstruction that Western and Southern Europe underwent during that period. Mm. And it was 1949 when it was. So I believe between 48 and 49 is really the genesis of when this 
program began and when Marshall Plan aid was delivered to Europe. And it proved extremely instrumental. And Bed Steel does a fantastic job of telling this story. It is not mm. just a rambling on of facts and figures. He also gets into the various human stories of those that were developing the plan and were administrating it and the various countries and that were recipients and their very specific needs. It is a fantastic history. It also gets into some of the early stages of economic integration, mm. specifically between France and Germany, that were extremely important because that had a historical butterfly effect mm. in regards to things like the creation much later of the European economic area or economic zone, or what we know today, of course, as the European Union. Yes. And highly recommended for anybody that's really interested in the early history of the Cold War and the very the many varied and numerous elements that went into that conflict and and how it was executed as it were Ben Steele does a tremendous job and there's no understating how important the Marshall Plan was obviously primarily for the nations that were recipients of Marshall Plan aid for the United States mm. for the West and everything that came with it and the benefits that were very necessary and the legacy that we are living today of the Marshall Plan. So, Ben Steele, the Marshall mm. Plan, give it a read. Patrick, what's another one of yours? So, I'm also currently reading a book called The Short History of Ireland by John Gibney. Uh, this basically does exactly what it says in the tin. This is a short history of the island and country slash countries of Ireland. Uh, it's a country I'm deeply fascinated with. Of course, I have history, family, from the Emerald Isles, as it likes to be known as. Uh, it's neatly from 1500 to the year 2000, so it covers all the big hitters of Irish history, shall we say. It covers the famine, the diaspora, uh, the unification, the IRA. It's a deeply fascinating book about a deeply fascinating country. If you don't know much about Irish history, this is definitely a great place to start before you delve into more niche subjects uh, like about the IRA or the famine. <laughs> That's my other book recommendation. There's really too much to say about it. I said it's a very specific niche side of history about Irish history. So go check it out if you want to. But I've also, and this is a great segue into our next sort of recommendations, I just finished a book called Replay, which is the history of video games. Uh, so it's primarily a video game based book, but it's also got history behind it. And what I found interesting about it, Paul, is when we talk about where video games began, it was the first video game. People like to point to Pong or Space Invaders. But this book begins with none other than our good friend Alan Turing and his concept huh. of a uh, version of chess that can be played via a computer. So it, it really does delve into that side of history. It delves into like what was happening in the 80s and 70s as a backdrop. And it goes as far back as to Alan Turing and his original computer. And I just thought talking about a history of video games book is a great way to segue into our history video game recommendations. It certainly is. 
So yes, game recommendations. Now, Paul, me and you are both quite big fans of the old video games. Paul, what's your go-to? Someone said to you, a history video game. What would be your top suggestion? So I'm a big homer of the Hearts of Iron series. Mm. They came out with Hearts of Iron 4 back in 2016, but mm. I'm actually a bigger fan of Hearts of Iron 3 with various DLCs, to be sure. And they have one that... They, all of it's kind of open source coding, so you can adapt the game in a variety of ways. Mm. For Hearts of Iron 3, which I'm a bigger fan of, which I won't go into the details of here why, <laughs> I'm a big fan of its Black Ice version. Okay. But essentially what Hearts of Iron is, for those who are not familiar, it's both a real-time and turn-based game where you take control of any country that existed as early as 1936, and you're in control of their military, their industrial production, the infrastructure, intelligence, politics, technological advances, diplomacy, and you ultimately guide them through on a grand strategy basis, which is, hmm. I should say, you control everything from the top Gosh. down. And it's, it's also a sandbox game, so hmm. there is no specific ending that you're looking for. So it's basically you define what the parameters of victory means to you. And if that means you want to be Estonia and take over the world, well, the option is there for you. So highly recommended Hearts of Iron 3 or 4, even though I personally am a bigger fan of 3. Mm. It it really does indulge an incredible um, sense of ability and possibility mm. if you are a very much a student of history and you enjoy that period of time. What's one of yours, Patrick? So one, and I think you have experience with this game. When it comes to like, I think a lot of people associate history games with your real time or your turn-based strategy kind of games, like your total wars. And I've never really been a massive player of games like that. However, one I did play an awful lot of was so the Civilization series is an incredibly Love popular. It. Yeah, it's an incredibly it. popular series. And there was one release for the Xbox 360 way back rank called Civilization Revolution. And oh. I believe it was kind of like a soft, sort of not even a reboot, but sort of like his more accessible console-friendly version of the Civilization franchise. And for some reason, me and my brother picked it up and we just really enjoyed it. I found it really engaging. I should really go back and play some of the more actual proper Civ games as opposed to just Civilization Revolution, which is like the the, the my first Civ game but I remember just really engaging with it and playing it over and over to get different results playing with different countries I just yeah that was one I found really engaging that's my closest experience I have with like a historical turn-based sort of game yeah mm. absolutely I mean Civ in whatever iteration it mm. is is a fantastic game and I've loved it for years yeah. going back to the very beginning another one that I have, this is old, we're talking yeah. about early 90s here, Okay, is, is the original Panzer General, which is a turn-based strategy game where you primarily play as the Germans on the tactical level, where you are fighting a lot of these large campaigns hmm. and directing divisions in certain ways, and it's a lot of fun. It's a very old game. You can find it pretty much anywhere online for a pittance, to say the least. <laughs> and Panzer General is a game that I have a great deal of fondness for. Panzer General. Yes, absolutely. A lot of hexagons that you're moving <laughs> around back and forth, but a, a tremendous game worth mentioning. Okay. Another one that's also quite old that's from the mid to late mm. 90s is a game called Caesar 3, 
where you play as the Romans. Okay. And and you're given assignments by Caesar oh. to build up certain areas in the empire. That includes just everything from housing to infrastructure to commerce to industry. And depending on where you are, sometimes that means even having to defend your settlement as well. So it's a tremendous game that it's old. It looks but great. But it's still a lot of fun. I'm oh, just, it is. I just searched on Google Images now, and it's got the same sort of isometric 2D, 3D design as Rodicus Tycoon. Yes, uh, yes, yes, that, yes. That ticks off that nostalgia book. And let's check that one out. I love that kind of uh, that kind of graphics, that sort of gameplay style. That, that You can play for that. hours yeah. on Caesar 3, and it just doesn't get old. Oh, it's great fun. Any good, any well put together history game hmm. doesn't. They are timeless. They yeah. don't age, at least not for us. Mm. You know, maybe if you're younger and it came out before you're born, <laughs> you would consider it unacceptable. I'm not among those, no. to be sure. But what's another one of yours, Patrick? So this is a whole series that is definitely worth mentioning because I think to a lot of people, it's definitely the de facto historic game. It's definitely probably the most successful historic video game franchise. And I definitely haven't played all of this series and I definitely haven't enjoyed all of this series, but the Assassin's Creed games are incredibly unique. They're incredibly popular. Do you know much about them, Paul? I'm generally familiar with them, Mm. but I've never actually played them myself. By and large, most of the each game takes place in a different historical period and comes with the trappings of that sort of period as well. But it's all told, uh, it might be outdated by now, but it's all told through like this narrative of you play as someone in the modern day and you're going back through their memories of their older ancestors who lived in different, like their ancestor who was alive during the Renaissance, their ancestor who was alive during the American Revolution, their ancestor who was alive during Victorian London. It's a very basic story to get you into these sort of worlds and while i said i haven't played all the games they are deeply important in history i believe some of them even have like historical modes where there aren't enemies you just sort of walk around and there's like information so i think it's in origins which is the ancient egypt one you can literally like there'd be like little information boxes you go to and it tells you actual historical information about that part of the game and it can be used in like a history classroom to immerse yourself in the historical side of it like they have their ups and downs that series but they're very much respected history in their own strange way i mean there's a weird mythology going on in those games as well which i don't think is historically accurate but it's a really interesting series another one that i think you and i Mm. have both indulged in is the oregon trail series well for me especially oregon trail 2 well, it's interesting because I've sort of I've written that I, I've thought about that in our notes, and I actually have no experience with the Oregon Trail. Uh, as I mentioned, oh. I recently read that book replay about the history of video games, and it said how the Oregon Trail was basically a mainstay in like early nineties, late eighties American classrooms. So I was wondering if you did have experience with it yourself. Very much mm. so, not just in the classroom, but at home as oh, well. Okay, then. And Oregon Trail 2 was very much um, the one that I enjoyed and that my brother enjoyed. And it's a tremendous fun challenge. It's a big jump up from the original Oregon Trail, especially graphically Is and it in terms based? of options. So the, or- the original original Oregon Trail was text-based, but it was just like text on a screen and you type in what you do. Was this one more like actual graphics? A lot more actual oh, okay. graphics. Oh, that's interesting to know. And you, would, you could start from a variety of points in mm. the Oregon Trail. 
uh, by default, you would start off in Independence, Missouri, and mm-hmm. then head out to Oregon. But there are also various destinations that you can change as well. Okay. And the idea is that you prepare for the trail mm-hmm. and the possible challenges that you'll face. So things like acquiring, you have a certain budget that, you know, getting things like replaceable parts, medicines, mm. food, various supplies, and then you have your family, and then you head out on the trail, and you're faced with a variety of challenges that very much challenge your preparation and your strategy for mm. how you're going about things. Do I ford the river? Do I pay for the ferry? How do I deal with heavy rain that's made the roads I'm going on into mud? Mm. How do I deal with this sick member of my family? Um, how good am I at, at hunting you know, bison while I'm out on the trail? I even have a little screen where you're actually firing at bison, things oh, like brilliant. that. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Very good game, very challenging, very much challenge your strategy mm. and your preparation side. And it, it's, it's a tremendous game that is, that is generation-defining. It's very highly regarded in like the world of video games as being one of those sort of influential, heavily influential games. But there's one more I just want to share with you, Paul, and this is kind of history-based. Have you ever heard of a game called Papers, Please? I might have. Describe it. So it's a hard game to explain. It's not set in a specific actual time in history. It's, it's based on a fictional country, but it's got a very heavy Soviet theme to it. If you just Google Papers, please, you'll see it's a very Soviet-based game from its aesthetics. And you basically play as a border-crossing guard. I do know yes. this. I've actually I've actually watched yeah. um, games of it being played on YouTube. It's fascinating. It's a really fascinating game. Like I looked at its Wikipedia page. I think it defined it as a puzzle game, but there's so much more to it to that. Like you have it, it you have like people trying to cross and you gotta like make sure you do the right stamps, that's kind of thing, but it's sort of how many people you can get through in a day. But it's like people say please, like they haven't got the right papers and you can decide if you want to let them go through still. It's a, it, it's almost a social experiment to some degrees. I've only played it a little bit. And I'll be honest with you, I found it a bit too much. Yeah, and like they really they start piling on as you go yeah, on. Yeah. Make and it like, more complicated. And it also relates to like between rounds. Because I think how many people you let through depends on how much you get paid. And between rounds, yeah. it's like there's text about you could feed your children tonight, you could feed that like, you could yeah. keep the heating on. And it, it, like I said, it's not based on a specific history of anywhere in particular. It's just of pan history, I guess, for lack of a better term. It reflects a lot of things that happen in real life. It's kind of like being a, a low-level apparatchik in mm. like some n- nondescript Soviet bloc country. Yes, yeah. And if you make mistakes for the people that you do let through, you get penalized by having pay taken away. Exactly, yeah. So or you I, get thrown into jail if you do a really bad job. Yeah, so the uh, subtitle the uh, is for this game is a dystopian document thriller. So it, it, in many ways, it's just like bureaucracy, the video game, but it's so much more than that as well. It's a really, it's a really fascinating play. You can probably pick it up for dirt cheap on most computers. You know, it's not a, ta- it's not a graphically demanding game. You can probably play it on most PCs, I imagine, by now. So now we're going to give you some documentary recommendations. Yes, and Paul, this is you're going to be taking the big camp on this because I have a slight confession to make. I don't watch that many documentaries at all. Like it sounds so bad. Like when I think I want to learn about history, I tend to reach for books and articles as opposed to documentaries, which is weird because I'm kind of 
somewhat in the business of making documentaries about history to a degree myself. You're not as much you're not as much of a consumer as you are a producer. Yes, but I want to change that. So I want to hear some great uh, documentary recommendations from yourself, Paul. So it won't be any surprise that a lot mm. of these will focus on the eras that I find mm. most interesting because that's what I would watch. But the first documentary that I would recommend is called World War II Behind Closed Doors, Stalin, the Nazis, and the West. And this was written, produced, and directed by Lawrence Reese for the BBC. Lawrence Reese is a fantastic mm. historical documentary maker. He's probably best known for his Auschwitz documentary that I think a lot of people have seen. Mm. And this focuses on the Soviet experience of the war, especially diplomatically and internally at the top in regards to how they prosecuted the war doc, uh, you know, historically, whether mm -hmm. that be the initial Soviet pact or when they got thrown into the great shotgun marriage that was the grand alliance mm -hmm. between the Soviet Union and the Western powers. There's a lot of live action re uh, reimagining of these various mm -hmm. meetings and discussions, and the acting is very good. I would say the only thing that, that takes you out of a little bit is that when you start getting later into the war, especially when you're talking about things like Yalta, that the fellow who plays FDR is looking a bit too healthy at that time. <laughs> really fantastic. I think it's five or six parts. They run all about an hour each. It's a monster documentary, but it'll give you such an incredible insight, especially diplomatically, to the Soviet experience during the war. The next documentary I would recommend is called The Battle of the Atlantic, once again written, produced, and directed by one Lawrence Reese for the BBC, where there's a lot of interviews with merchant marines mm. that were, you know, having to go back and forth during that terrible battle, members of the Royal Navy, things of that nature, where it gives you a very good idea of what it was like having to endure what was the longest battle of the war. Mm. And from the British perspective in particular, because they are the ones that it was most vital to, you were talking about an island nation that had to import the vast majority of what it needed to live and fight. And to have that tremendous U-boat campaign and overcoming it, there's no undenying how important it was in this documentary, Battle of the Atlantic for mm. the BBC by Lawrence Reese. Truly fantastic. Another one is called mm. Warlords where it focuses on the perspective each of how Churchill, FDR, and Stalin dealt with the war from their perspective and how they interacted with each other. I believe it's four or five parts mm -hmm. and definitely entirely worth your time. Gives you a whole new perspective on how the allies ultimately dealt with each other and how they came and worked to, you know, prosecute the war. The last one's actually a series okay. of three documentaries. They were all hosted by a fantastic British historian by the name of David Reynolds. It has to do with diplomacy, first starting before the Second World War, starting with Munich, and going all the way to the Geneva summit with Reagan and Gorbachev in 1985, where he talks about the evolution of... Uh, diplomatically of summitry or the, the concept of having summits, mm. which in this case, he starts with the very first one, Hitler and Chamberlain, the Munich crisis, 1938, and how Chamberlain, through the steps that he took, unintentionally created this whole concept of leaders coming together and talking about issues one-on-one. -on -one. And even though you saw some of this to some extent during 
the First World War, prior to that, a lot of times leaders of countries did not meet face-to-face for a variety of reasons. So it's very much a modern conception of how communication improved, how travel in a timely basis improved with the innovation of commercial air travel, Mm -hmm. and how it became so important. So he starts with the Munich crisis, which is actually a series of four meetings, or three or four meetings overall between Hitler and Chamberlain. He also does one on the Khrushchev-Kennedy-Vienna summit in 1961, which went horribly awry. And then you had the final one, the Geneva summit between Reagan and Gorbachev in 1985, which went extremely well and started a process where the two sides really did work together and had concrete outcomes in terms of what they were both hoping to achieve diplomatically. So David Reynolds, his take on symmetry, Hitler and Chamberlain, the Munich crisis, Khrushchev and Kennedy, the Vienna summit of 1961, Reagan and Gorbachev, the Geneva summit of 1985. You type any of that into YouTube and you will find it. And they Mm. are extraordinary, especially as the Cold War, especially, and the evolution of the diplomatic summit came into being and the various outcomes, both good and bad, entirely worth your time. And the last thing we're going to leave you here is actually Mm. a recommendation for a YouTube history-oriented channel, and that is Atun Shea Films. And you'll have to go and take a look at it. You might be familiar with Atun Shea Films because he's the one who came up with the now very popular uh, segment and offering called Checkmate Lincolnites, Mm. which Atun Shea Films, Checkmate Lincolnites, just type that into YouTube, and I guarantee there is a treat waiting for you. But that's what we have in terms Mm. of our history of media recommendations. When we come back, we're going to be answering the question that we get asked a lot. How do we start a podcast? And we'll be back to answer that very question right afterward from one, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. And thank you, Anna. Now, Paul, a question we get quite often is, how do you even go about making a podcast? And my answer is normally pretty simple. I tell people, get a pool. (laughs) 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 So I suppose your answer is probably a bit more detailed than mine. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that we get asked a lot, especially through email, how do we do it? And the way Patrick and I do it, I don't think is necessarily so relevant to somebody starting out. Our, our particular options and, and how we do it is, would be otherwise quite complex and not exactly um, relevant to somebody that's just starting out. We are going to share with you yeah. information that is relevant. And for this, I'm actually going to go straight to camera. Now, When you're starting off a podcast, there's a variety of ways that you can go about it technologically. We'll get to how we ended up forming the show in a bit. But in this case, you need a few different parts of equipment, and there are a few different options. But I'm going to give you what I believe is the the best recommendation to start out. Mm. And basically, the first piece of technology that I'm going to show you is right here. This... As you may see, this nice, big, shiny red box, Patrick can see it himself. Yes, there it this is. is <laughs> yes, this is known as a digital audio interface. 
what this allows you to do is via USB connect a XLR microphone to this device that will then take the signal and then put it into the computer into whatever DAW, which is an acronym for Digital Audio Workstation, so something like Audacity, and allow you to go and record it. And it's very nifty. It'll allow you to do things like, obviously, it has the XLR jack in there, and it's a combo, so you can put in either an XLR or a quarter-inch input. It allows you to control the gain as such, and on this one, it's particularly cool because it will tell you using the, the green light-up screen around it that you have your particular levels at a desirable point. And when it's going too red, that means your signal is too hot and you are potentially clipping, which means in the digital audio world that the signal and what you're looking to record is going to begin distorting, which you don't want. And it also gives you a nice level here for your headphones and a jack for quarter-inch inputs. Now, in order to be able to connect that particular device to a given XLR microphone, like the one I'm using right here, is through a... This is a particularly long one. You don't need it to be this long. XLR cable. So one side that's called male, and one side that's called female. Female side goes into your XLR microphone, and the male side goes into the audio interface to connect the two, and so you're able to record. And then usually you have a USB-A to a USB-B connection to get it to the computer. In addition to that, you'll also want to get a decent pair of closed-back headphones. And just because they go over the ear doesn't mean that they're closed-back. You can have open-back ones, but basically the reason you want closed-back headphones when you're doing this is so that any of the, the sound that is going into your headphones, because you should be able to hear your spell speak as you talk through the signal that you're recording, that it doesn't bleed out. Or if you have a co-host, their audio doesn't bleed out through the headphones and into your microphone. Very important to be sure. The next thing, of course, you're going to be asking about is what microphone should I be using? And for most people, you'll see in a lot of articles, if you've ever looked it up, they'll say, you need a condenser microphone. And all I can say to that is, is that a joke? Because ultimately, <laughs> what Patrick and I are using are what are called dynamic microphones. And the biggest difference between dynamic microphones and, in many cases, the condenser microphone is condenser microphones are far more sensitive. They pick up a lot more of what's happening around you, whereas a dynamic microphone is less sensitive and only has the lobe of sensitivity. You have to be right up on the thing in order for it to work. So unless you're in a really well-treated space and there's not a lot of noise going around, you most certainly want to have the dynamic microphone. It'll be much more forgiving to you. Now, you'll look at the microphone that I'm using if you're watching the video segment of this, and I'm going to try to describe it as best I can for those who are simply listening to the show, but the video side of things makes things a lot easier and will be even more edifying mm. for those that are interested. So the microphone you're seeing me use right now is a microphone that you have probably seen, especially if you enjoy YouTube, used many, many, many times by so many different people. 
And those that are not familiar with this microphone, this is the microphone is called the Shure SM7B. And it's been made famous by a lot of different people. I think probably the most notable person that uses this that's made it very popular is Joe Rogan. Mm. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is that while this is a dynamic microphone, you do not need the Shure SM7B in order to do a podcast. No, plain, case in point. Plain simple. <laughs> yeah. And something that is very clear if you're in the sphere of creation and you know about this stuff is especially among creators and new creators they think oh xyz creator that's doing what i want to do is using this piece of equipment so i have to use this piece of equipment that couldn't be any further from the truth the reality is when it comes to microphones microphones are not even the most important thing when you're getting ready and setting yourself up to do a podcast the first most important thing is having a really solid audio interface, one where the preamps, which gives allows gain for you to record from your microphone, and that you're getting really good, clean preamps, and that does not introduce a lot of noise, is very important. And lucky today, there are a lot of very affordable interfaces that do just that for you, and that they provide a reasonable amount of gain to be able to drive a microphone. Now, this one particular microphone I'm using is very gain-hungry, but don't focus in too much on that because unless you're live streaming, you don't need to go and get a device like one that I'm using on top of it right now. You can't see it very clearly, but they call them inline mic activators, which give you an additional uh, 20 to 25 decibels of clean gain, especially when you're going into post-production live streaming. That may be necessary, but when you're going back in post and you're you're doing compression and you're doing normalization, that's not nearly as important. But the first thing is that you get a nice, clean, solid audio interface, like, for example, this one, the Focusrite Scarlett. In this case, it's the Focusrite Scarlett 2i4 second gen. The Focusrite Scarlett interface line is now onto its third generation. It comes in a solo variety as well, though I always suggest getting one that has the two XLR quarter-inch combo inputs in the front because you never know when you might have a guest in person, and that's something that's very important to be able to prepare for. The other thing that's important before you get to the idea of the microphone is the quality of the space that you're actually recording in. Is it quiet? Are you getting a lot of echo? Things like that, things that are really important before you ever even think about what you need to do in post-production. Because right now, even though you can't see around us, and we're going to keep this today focused solely on audio-only podcasts, the video yeah. side of things is an entirely different explainer that if at some point people are interested, we can get into. But that's not going to be the focus of what we're doing here today. You want to make sure that there's not a lot of echo in there. You're doing it in a quiet space and that before you even talk about a microphone, that it is a good place for you to record where you're getting that consistent, very quiet area and where there's not too much reverb or echo in this case, reverb being the term you're looking for. Invest in acoustics, like acoustic blankets. Paul, you told me to get an acoustic blanket and it's just changed my audio quality. I'm glad it's worked so well for you. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I have like, a few of them uh, applied yeah. around here as well that you can't see off camera. But So my old office, as you listeners may remember, it was really well acoustically treated. Like I didn't have to do anything to it. It was in a basement. It was quite sort of small and narrow. It was just well, Once you got the dynamic microphone. Yeah, 
it just worked really well. But then when I moved house, I had this new office. It was a really horrible echo in here for so long. Obviously, normally it would be a bedroom with a duvet and blankets and that sort of stuff in there. But as an office, it was just a very sharp, barren room. So putting up a big old uh, acoustic blanket on the walls helped out tremendously. Absolutely. Especially mm. when you're recording in a, in a small space mm. where there's a lot of hard surfaces where the, the sound... The, the signal, the which is exactly can just bounce off of everything is, yeah. and then right back into the microphone. But you have a dynamic microphone, and potentially you can put up blankets, or in this case, there are specific acoustic blankets or moving blankets which help absorb the the sound in that room, so it's not jumping all around. And yeah. if you're watching this on YouTube right behind me, you'll notice, of course, that I have shelves behind me, and when you put books and whatnot in there, especially even though I'm not doing this at the moment, if you put them out pages first and you stack them one horizontally and then right next to it, you stack another one vertically and then the next one you do horizontally, within them they create excellent sound diffusers which redirect all of the various sounds away from your microphone and help bring down that echo mm -hmm. or reverb as well. But when you're getting to in this case, the microphone, there's a lot of great XLR options that are far more affordable than, say, the SM7B that I'm using right now. And that, for example, if Patrick, you're willing, if you take off the, the foam cover there, is a microphone called the Rode PodMic. Sorry if this is affecting the audio at all. Quite all there right. It is. And as you can see, that is a dynamic microphone made by Rode, once again called the Rode PodMic. It usually goes for about 100 American or 100 quid over in the UK. Mm. And it's a wonderful studio quality XLR microphone. Clown nose not case, included. Yeah, clown nose not included. And in this case, Patrick is plugged into uh, my old mixer mm. as his interface. But for many people, I would very much recommend the, the standard audio interface. In this case, it mm. is the Scarlett. 2i4 second gen, but you'll find them there. They are available new. There are a great many that are available used, and any of them will serve you incredibly well. And once again, having those good over-the-ears closed-back headphones will treat you very well. In terms of actual quality of the software that you're using, Audacity is a wonderful place to start. Now, yeah. I know there are a lot of people out there right now that have issues with Audacity because they were acquired by a company that has made, in certain respects, the user more vulnerable in terms of their privacy. However, if you look up Audacity forks, so because Audacity even still is open source software, there have been people out there that have gone and made forks of that program mm. and where your Privacy is not quite so much at risk if you are privacy conscious, which I certainly am. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, once you've gone and you've gotten and you've learned more about Audacity and how to work with audio and processing it in post-production, the other recommendation I have in terms of a jump up that is very good for podcasting mm -hmm. is Adobe Audition. Uh, the radio industry uses a lot, and the podcasting industry uses it a lot. Of course, you have almost limitless options when it comes to DAWs or DAWs, so digital audio workstations. I know for us, we actually record into Logic Pro. I would not suggest that for uh, somebody who's new, because that 
that one is a uh, harder nut to crack, but you also have other industry standards like Pro Tools. Mm. You have Reaper. You have, obviously, if you're a Mac user, you have GarageBand, which mm. can serve you very well. And on top of that, if, for example, you're not doing just a solo show and you're co-hosting, a service that Patrick and I now use for recording mm. remotely is a service called CleanFeed, which does have a free version of it. It gives you very high studio quality connection and recording abilities if you and your co-host are remote from each other, especially permanently remote like Patrick and myself. Yeah. They also have a premium version called CleanFeed Pro that we use, but that's for very specific reasons. Their free version is absolutely 100% wonderful, and there are many professionals, especially in the radio world, that use CleanFeed. And I'm not just talking about the CleanFeed Pro version. I'm also talking about the free version. So for the people that really know what they're doing, they're using CleanFeed as mm -hmm. well. And there are other options out there. For example, Riverside.fm is a subscription-based program, but you can actually record online, and it's constantly backing up your recording between yourself and a recording third party. It's truly wonderful. Now, one thing that I am going to address real quick, because this is important, is some of you are going to ask yourself invariably, well, what about USB microphones? And the thing I'll say to you is USB microphones are fine. Mm. Uh, it, we're in an age now where there's a lot more dynamic style microphones that you use the USB connection. A lot of times they're actually combination USB and XLR. And the one microphone that is under $100, I think it goes for about $80 now, is called the Samson Q2U. It looks very similar to the very famous Shure SM58, which you have seen used at concerts and stand-up comedy and various live performances throughout your entire life. It's the one that looks kind of like a snow cone or an ice cream cone. That should mm. remind you of what it is. It looks a lot like that but it's a really excellent microphone. It's under $100. You don't have to have the interface, even though it does support both USB and XLR, and it will work with essentially any digital audio workstation piece of software in order to record that audio. And once again, good pair of cans, headphones, closed back. Can't say how important that is. And a lot of times, especially with, like for example, the Samsung Q2U, you can actually plug in your headphones to that and you can get zero latency monitoring, which means there's no delay between what you're saying and what you're hearing, hmm. which is extremely important. But the last part that we're going to discuss here between Patrick and myself real hmm. quick that's very important is the other non-technical side of the equation, which is how did we develop AD history? Yeah, I can actually so help I'm going with this, to Babs. pan away from camera. <laughs> Back to you, Mr. Foot. Yeah, and I can actually join in because you're definitely the technical master of all this. So um, in regards to creating AD history, it went for a lot of iterations to begin with, I would say. Like, I I, I don't want to be like, I was the sole creator of but I had, I'm sure you won't argue this is like a Lennon McCartney type thing. I had yeah. the initial idea, even if it was just the name AD history, I had the initial concept of AD history that I shared with you. I'm not trying to take all the glory. I hope you can agree. No, this is really an excellent thing from mm. a, a, a creator case study point of view. So we went back and forth a number of times in terms of what might be an idea. And then you came 
and you presented to me something that you had boiling in the back of your head for some time. Yeah, I had it as like AD a history. I had it as a U. So it's an initially I had AD history as an idea for a YouTube channel where it'd be like one minute videos a day about something that happened each year in AD history. So like there'd be a one minute video about each. Literally, initially it was like one. Yeah, yeah. That was what literally the pure initial kernel of an idea. That's what it was. I came to you, and as it slowly developed into more of a podcast type idea, then we kind of developed it together. Yeah. Mm. So it went from this one minute for one year going Mm. forward to on a decade basis, starting Mm. with the first decade of the first century, and where it would be two segments where we each take a major event. Mm. from world history that happened in that decade and that we would each lead that segment, which would be originally the show we thought we were batting around the idea that the show in general would be 30 minutes long. And it didn't take long for us to realize that that we needed more time than that because we were, it it took us a little time to realize that this would be far more long form and conversational Mm. than, uh, than originally anticipated. The thing that I would say about it is that this was both through circumstance, but it's also something that I think ended up being very positive, is we gave ourselves a considerable amount of time to design this right. Mm. So you and I really, we agreed that we wanted to work together in the beginning of November of, of 2018. And we really began sitting down and having, you know, these really in-depth planning sort of meetings towards the end of January, mm. early February of 2019. And there were so many, like, pilots. We did, like, two or three or four pilot episodes. Yeah, by the time we got to mm. May, like, after we did our first time out, and this is something that I would very much recommend, whether you're planning to do this solo or you have a co-host in mind, whether it be a co-host that's local to you mm. or a co-host that's remote, is... The first time Patrick and I recorded an episode of 80 History was not an episode that ever went out. No. It was something where we sat down and we just did the show and we and we we were curious to see what came of it. Yeah. And it was pretty good. I'd like to go back and listen to that episode again one day, I think. I think, yeah, it would be really interesting mm. because... That very first time we did it, we came to the realization of, oh, crap, this is definitely not going to just be a 30-minute show. We figured this is going to be at least an hour. Yeah. And that, those are things that only an experience like that can teach you. And so when we go back and we started doing it, and we did a few of these, what we, what we would call dress rehearsals. So I think we did it three mm-hmm. times before we sat down and did the actual episode number one that you guys all heard. Yes, yeah. That was beneficial because one is we got a much better idea of what the show would ended up being like, what we wanted it to be like, mm. especially realistic to our ambitions in regards to how we present particular topics and how we structured the show. And it was also really good and important for taking those initial baby steps in developing that behind the mic rapport that you need between two co-hosts, especially in a long form format and there were so many things like we didn't do like when we first we did we, obviously you the listeners seeing video is a fairly new thing but even for us like it took us about 10 episodes before we started seeing each other on our webcams ourselves like we used to just do it blind but now we can actually see each other as we talk which makes a lot of sense but it took us a few episodes to figure that out 
Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> definitely. And it helped a lot mm. because even though we kind of started figuring it out, being able to see one another is incredibly important when it comes to conversation. Mm. I mean, obviously, we we don't see each other all the time when you're making a phone call. But when you're recording a co-hosted long-form podcast like AD History, it's pretty darn important. Mm. And right now, we're looking at each other through Google Meet, but we have Google Meet muted, and we're using clean feed for our audio. Mm. Yeah. And so it took us time to develop the show and, and build that rapport and understanding what we wanted to do, what we didn't want to do, what we should do, that mm. kind of thing that is so important. And I would also stress this, well, obviously you don't want to drag your feet so it never happens. Take your time. Yeah. Take your time. Plan it out, plan it out, plan it out. Absolutely, both in terms of the content and in our case, speaking from our personal experience, learning how to work together. And on top of that, also take whatever time you have and dedicate it to learning your equipment hmm. and understanding how it works and being able to get the sound and production quality that you want. Because when you go hmm. back and listen to it, you will know what sounds good and what doesn't sound good. And on YouTube, there are so many great resources to be able to learn how to do all of this. Several that I would recommend to you, especially when you're looking at microphones, is a YouTube channel called Podcasted, which is mm. hosted by Bandrew Scott. He has basically reviewed any particular microphone you can possibly imagine or be interested in and give you a lot of really good information. And examples of like that microphone used in different scenarios, which is really yeah. good as well. And especially spoken word. Hmm. You know, it's very much focused towards the podcast audience, but it's also true for musicians as well. Another person that I would actually call the production prophet on YouTube is a fellow by the name of Curtis Judd. Curtis Judd goes through all sorts of stuff. Microphones, interfaces, video, hmm. lighting, acoustic treatment. And in a very understandable way, he is a wealth of information, and he is very diligent at answering comments and questions that are left under his videos, which is very impressive for a guy that, you know, I think at this point, pushing 300,000 subscribers, wow, really good. which is saying quite a lot. Mm. Another fellow to look at who does voiceover and evaluates microphones, but he'll evaluate other equipment as well, is a fellow by the name of Mike Delgadio. Now, he is a voiceover artist. But voiceover artists and podcasters are basically half-siblings. So you mm. can definitely imbibe a lot of very useful information from someone like him. Those are the big three. There are others, but take your time. On top of that, be sure to learn something like Audacity and the various mm. things that you need to become a better editor. You don't want to over-edit, but there are the various effects and, and how things are used and just how to make the best sounding show possible. And while it is entirely true that a lot of people today, the vast majority of our audience, whether it be audio only or on the YouTube, they're probably listening or watching through their mobile device, mm. through headphones that are consumer grade headphones or through their speakers. So they're not getting like the greatest high fidelity experience or they might be in a situation where there's noise around them 
so they won't see and notice various imperfections. That's all true. You can't deny any of that. Mm. But don't rely on it either. You really do want to take the time to learn as much as possible how to get the best sounding audio. And you don't have to drop a huge amount of money to get that done. So long as you are in a good space, you have a solid dynamic microphone, whether of the XLR or USB variety, good cans, and you're recording into something that does a very good job like Audacity, which once again is free or one of its forks Mm -hmm. to be sure. Or if you have a co-host, something like the free version of CleanFeed goes a very long way. So detail matters. You don't want to have to be a perfectionist, but learn about these variety of things to get the best sounding quality of audio possible because there's no question. And there have been studies that have been done. There was one within the last year from USC where the perception of the quality of audio changed dramatically the perception of the audience in terms of how they viewed the presenter, where the the cut of lower quality audio very much affected how they thought of the presenter, even though they may have had nothing to do with it compared to that same presentation, but with much higher quality audio. So it definitely counts. But at the end of the day, content is king. Mm. And having a good, well-developed show, and if you're doing it as uh, with a co-host like Patrick and myself are, taking the time to work together, develop the show you want, and on top of that, taking the time to do some dress rehearsals that your audience will never hear. So you can yeah. really develop that rapport. So by the time you do lay down and record that very first episode, you guys will be cooking very much and working off the same page. So now, listeners, I hope you understand why my answer was to how to do a podcast is get a pool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that makes a lot more sense now. True enough, my friend. So (laughs) hopefully this better answers this in a way that is most applicable to you who is interested in doing this yourself from the very beginning and pointing you in the right direction in a way that is most helpful. And of course, you can always ask us questions, especially best by email, to be sure, by emailing adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, that's adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. We'll always help field those questions. But for the most part, this is a very good foundation from where to start in terms of what you need on the content side, on the technology side, and some places you can go to further your knowledge as well. Anything you want to add, Patrick? Not particularly, Paul. I think you covered pretty much all the ground. Yeah, like just have a great idea. I think it, that's what I've learned. I think through between name, it's been an AD history. If you've got just an initial great idea that can grasp people's attention and just go, huh, that's an interesting thing, just run with it and just go. That's That's my best advice I can say. Content is king, like you said, Paul. From from the mouth of Mr. Name Explain himself, whose incredible work undoubtedly speaks for itself. Mm, We'll see. (laughs) Well, we have seen, my friend. We have seen. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. 
Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.